Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Forecast Fest. I'm John Avalon, here with my colleague, Harry Anton. Shalom. And Kate is off this week. So joining us again on the pod is Margaret Hoover, also known as Margaret Hoover-Nandez. She is the CNN contributor, host of Firing Line on PBS, as well as My Bride, which is why I get to call her silly names. Margaret. Full disclosure. Hi. Welcome Thanks to the Forecast Fest. Thanks for having Fest. me back. All right. This week, we got a mini Polapalooza in the wake of Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York dropping out of the primary race. Cue the sad trombones. And we look at what other Democratic candidates are on the ropes. Climate change has been at the forefront of news these past few weeks, but is it top of mind for voters? We'll discuss. Finally, a quick look at the changing politics of impeachment with more Democrats joining the impeachment train as President Trump has a new scandal because of a whistleblower and the Ukraine. We'll explain. But first, as always, we do the forecast. Harry, what you got? So these are our power rankings that I do with Chris Eliza every few weeks, and here they are, a little fresh and new for you. Mm. Number 10, Julian Castro. Amy Klobuchar comes in at number 9. She's down a spot. Andrew Yang is up a slot to number 8. Cory Booker down a slot to number 7. And up to number 6, up a spot, is Beto O'Rourke. One through five stays the same. Number five, Pete Buttigieg. Number four, Kamala Harris. Number three, Bernie Sanders. Elizabeth Warren comes in at two. Joe Biden at one. But a difference from the last few times we have done it, we're calling it a top tier of Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren. So although Biden's one and Warren's two, we think that they constitute a top tier with Sanders dropping down a tier into the second tier with Harris and so on and so forth. Is the Warren momentum as such that you could see her at the top of the top tier in the coming weeks? I I think it's certainly plausible. Um, Does the tier, is it because it's within a margin of error for both of them in a conglomerate of polls? I I mean, if if you were to translate it, I think that that's the general idea, right, which is that Biden is probably a little bit ahead on average, but they are very, very tight. And that's something, of course, we're seeing in the early state polling so far. in these power rankings, too, got to say, surprised by the Yang momentum, would not have thought that Andrew Yang would be outpacing I, I, senators and mayors. Here's the deal with Andrew Yang. The deal with Andrew Yang is pretty simple, is that especially for the upcoming debate starting in November, you're going to need to hit a donor threshold. You're going to need to hit a polling threshold. And we believe he has a better shot of hitting that than, say, an Amy Klobuchar does, and certainly much more so than a Julian Castro, who I don't think will be appearing in the November debates. They have been warned. All right. Now let's kick over to how the candidates are doing on a local level with our Polapalooza. We're going to zoom in and see how they do in the early voting states, because as we all know, folks, that's what really matters. We've got new polling hot off the presses from Iowa mm-hmm. and New Hampshire. Mmm, mm-hmm. delicious new polls. Uh, let's start in Iowa, 
Harry, what you seeing? So Des Moines Register CNN poll, and I think this is rather important. Elizabeth Warren up to 22 percent. She's joining that top tier by Joe Biden, who's at 20 percent. Bernie Sanders comes in at 11. Pete Buttigieg back at nine. Everyone else at six or below. Notable things here is Warren. Take a look at the trend line. In March, he was at nine. June 15, now 22. Biden going the other way. 27 in March, 23 in June, 20 now. And Bernie Sanders has really fallen off the map. 25 in March, 16 in June. And 11 now. So speaking of top tiers, Margaret, um, if you're anyone not named Biden and Warren, uh, are, are you thinking about packing it in? Not yet. Are you kidding? We're four and a half months away from Iowa. Anything can happen. Anything Breakout can happen. moments in the debates, money bombs coming in. But it, but it, what you do what you do see actually is a I think a revelation. Especially I spent a little bit of time in Iowa in August. And anecdotally, I was with you. Bob. Yeah, well, you, you may I'm have been the there. Room. You may have been family there with trip. our family and our children. Yes. Uh, but especially in eastern Iowa, which is a Democratic part of the state, you heard anecdotally people saying there are far more Warren people around. They had seen all the candidates, but they'd seen more of Warren and they'd seen more staffers had more contacts with her. Totally anecdotal, but perhaps this is what's actually revealed in these polls as they start coming. And, and, and Harry, it looks like, I mean, Warren's rise is coming out of Bernie Sanders' hide. Is that fair? I would think that that is fair. So this poll, we broke it down. We asked who you voted for in 2016. And among those who say they caucused for Bernie Sanders in 2016, Warren's getting 32 percent of that vote. Bernie Sanders is just getting 25 percent of that vote. So she is winning more of Bernie Sanders' 2016 supporters than Bernie Sanders is. But here's the key little nugget. She's also winning 22 percent of those who caucused for Hillary Clinton in 2016. She's, she's taking a bit of both of those pies. She has been able to bridge that divide in a way that Sanders, who's getting 25 percent of his own vote and zero percent of Clinton's vote, has been able to do. And in a way that Joe Biden hasn't been able to do because he is winning 29 percent of Clinton's 2016 supporters, but just 6 percent of Bernie Sanders' 2016 supporters. To, to put kind of a trolley uh, term on it, Warren is almost triangulating a little bit between Hillary and Bernie in those bases. Or she's becoming this consensus alternative. She's a new face and she's able to bridge. I, I would hardly call her a moderate. But in the context no of way. Iowa progressive caucus goers, <laughs> she is. I, I think what I would point out is that she has a base that's both well-educated. That was Clinton's big vote block in 2016 and, that, and those caucuses in that primary season, as well as those very liberals. And so she's able to kind of join in those two different parts of the party. Has the Iowa caucus uh, cohort become less representative of the state over time, i.e. moved left? I mean, the state itself has moved right. I mean, that's for and sure. And the caucus seems to have moved but left. But the caucus goers uh, tend yeah, the, to be more progressive than other progressive bases in the country. Yes. Yeah, I would say that that's correct, especially as the Democratic Party. One other aspect of this that struck me was the extremely enthusiastic versus mind made up. Um, you know, Warren's leading on that pretty considerably with Biden, you know, pretty well down at, at 16 behind Sanders. Uh, yeah, among those who are extremely enthusiastic about their candidates. Right. And Buttigieg has a, a you know tied with Biden for extremely enthusiastic in Iowa. Exactly. Uh, but the mind made up, Biden still has got an edge. Yeah, Biden's got an edge there. Look at that. 26 percent. He wins 26 percent of the voters who say their minds are made up versus Warren, who wins just 14. Sanders is actually ahead of Warren there. She's, uh, he's at 19. And I think that's an indication, right, that it's still early days yet. The caucuses are not taking place until February. We still got a lot of time to go, and people may be extremely enthusiastic about Warren now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their minds are made up. They're perhaps waist high in the water, not head high.
And historically, Iowa caucus goers decide within the last week before the caucus. Mm -hmm. And the memorable thing about the caucus goers is that you go and have a first choice, but then you end up with a second or third choice. The caucuses literally are chosen by what corner of the room you're standing in. So this is by design an incredibly fluid process down to the end. And in fact, I've got some insight into it. So I basically looked at where polls were in September before the caucuses and what percentage you'd expect a certain person polling at that given percentage to win. And what we see is someone in Elizabeth Warren's position, we'd only expect her to win the caucuses about 30 percent of the time versus someone in Joe Biden's polling position at about 20 percent in September in the year before the caucuses would win about 25 percent of the time. So there's essentially combined, they make up a majority, right? They, If you were betting, you'd say either Biden or Warren would win. But we're not really sure which one necessarily would. But it sounds like the person with the energetic second place at this stage may be in a better position. Well, it, it, it historically, it, it really does. Well, it's what we see essentially is if you're at 22 percent at this point, like Warren in Iowa, you win about 30 percent of the time. If you're 20 percent like Biden, you win about 25 percent of the time. And then you have this whole slew of people right around 10 percent. They win about 10 percent of the time, both Sanders and Buttigieg. And then I would just point out, even if you're at 1%, you win about 4% of the time. And that's, that's where George and, but H. That's a Bush great was. segue because the person who wins Iowa, of course, goes into New Hampshire with hot coattails, uh, the big mo, as uh, George H.W. would say. Um, and Elizabeth Warren also has the benefit of being a neighboring state senator. Uh, what's the new New Hampshire poll say there, Harry? So if we were to look Monmouth University out with a poll on Tuesday, what do we see there? The big momentum for Elizabeth Warren. Oh, She's so up to terrifying when you do this. <laughs> She's up to 27%. That is a jump from 8% back in May. Bernie Sanders has dropped from 18 to 12, but the biggest dropper is actually Biden, who's dropped from 36 percent to 25 percent. Now, I should point out, though, that that May poll was taken just as Biden was getting in the race and he was kind of at a artificial high then. So it's not so much that he's dropped, but what you do see is a clear inertia building for Elizabeth Warren. Absolutely. And, and, and again, what's, what we're looking at is Elizabeth Warren ahead in two recent polls in Iowa and New Hampshire. Top tier, very clear, within a margin of error. Um, but you could easily see a situation which seems to be building where Warren wins Iowa and New Hampshire. And that creates a lot of momentum for a campaign. It's very difficult to stop. How often has a candidate won Iowa and New Hampshire and then not won a nomination? The only one that I'm aware of would have been in 1972 when Edmund Muskie won both of those states. Got to go and all the way he, back to Muskie. And that was the only one. And that was right at the beginning of the process. It's going to be very, very hard to stop a train that wins both Iowa and New Hampshire. Although we would like to see if you were on the Elizabeth Warren campaign, you would like to see essentially doing better with African-American voters because South Carolina would probably be the quote-unquote firewall for Biden if it would pot potentially hold on. Is, is a firewall really a thing, though? Because Not really. by Yeah, right? By three weeks later, you've got Nevada beforehand. There's so much inertia. No firewall can possibly hold up for really any candidate at that point. Also, there's sort of this, you know, South Carolina is waiting to see what happens in Iowa and New Hampshire, and that ends up being a, a definitive deciding factor in how South Carolinians vote. W one other big bit of news in this poll, though, is... Tulsi Gabbard seems to have made it to the next debate stage. That's correct. She got 2% in this poll. That makes four. She has the necessary donors, which means we'll have 12 candidates who have qualified for the October debates. 
which means two nights of debates. I know we were all looking forward to that. So we'll be able to have two separate debates. Today. Tom Steyer and uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Added to the ones who made this. Anyone else looking like they might be able to no, make that? not at this point. Unless there's some miracle of polls for some candidate that I'm not unaware of at this particular time. A miracle of polls. That's pretty significant news. This week in the Forecast Fest, Elizabeth Warren pulling ahead in the first two primary states. We'll call it a top tier. She's certainly pulled into a tie. For Solidifying her position yes. in the top tier of the Democratic field for candidates with Joe Biden. Uh, I think that that is exactly right. And the other thing I'll just point out is her favorable ratings are way up in both of those states. Um, and if I was looking for one candidate who also has high favorables, it's Buttigieg, who hasn't seen the jump yet. But both of those states could be good for him demographically being extremely white. Yes. And there you have the South Carolina question, because it's just demographically very different than the other two. I would say so. A majority electorate there is African-American. But I would say it'd be very interesting if Buttigieg won one of the early states, Warren won another, then you don't have a front runner. And then maybe Biden could hold on to South till South Carolina. But we're getting ahead of ourselves at this point. Still crazy way to pick a president. All right. Um, before we go, we need to touch base on something that's been breaking around President Trump and Ukraine. So here are the facts, folks. President Trump pressed Ukrainian President Zelensky in a call to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden's son, Hunter. It resulted in a whistleblower complaint, which a Trump appointee who was inspector general of the intelligence community uh, said was both urgent and credible. We've also seen reports that Trump has asked his acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, to put a hold on millions in military aid to Ukraine one week before their call. Uh, Harry, what are the underlying numbers under impeachment? Yeah, so Margaret, I, th- I think the real question is, right, if you look back at our la- latest poll done in May about impeachment, a clear majority of Democrats said that they supported impeachment, 72 percent. But that was well south, well south of the 89 percent of Democrats who disapproved of the job Donald Trump was doing. Mm-hmm. And it should be pointed out that if Democrats begin to support impeaching the president in the same numbers that they do disapprove of the job that he's doing, then the public overall, even if no Republicans in the electorate move on impeachment, the public overall will move much more towards a 50-50 proposition instead of, say, what our last CNN poll found, which was only 41 percent of Americans supporting it. So, Margaret, obviously impeachment is a serious step. It's deeply divisive. You've been, I think, understandably skeptical of the politics of it. Um, do you understand why some folks seem to be tipping who've resisted up to this point? Well, the fact- facts of this case, the facts of these circumstances are very different than the facts of the Mueller report. The facts of the Mueller report or surrounding the Mueller report relied on a silver bullet or some sort of uh, definitive information that would demonstrate there was, in fact, conspiracy between President Trump and a foreign government to interfere in our elections. That's the starting point for this conversation, an actual conversation between the president of the United States and a head of state about interfering in our elections. So did it appear that it was a witch hunt before, or does it appear that it's a witch hunt now, or does it appear that there are there is substantial concrete information that their roles and responsibilities as representatives of the American people are to be the, the actors of good due diligence? Right. It's, it's a national security concern now. And I think that is the difference. Right. All right. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're seeing Hail Mary fundraising efforts from those lower tier candidates in the Democratic primary. Will it matter? Because if you aren't in the top five at this point, do you even have a shot at winning the nomination? What does history tell us? And then the issue of climate change hitting the streets and taking center stage at the U.N. We look at where it ranks with voters as they head into 2020. That is up next. back. 
On Saturday, Senator Cory Booker's campaign announced they needed to raise $1.7 million in 10 days to stay alive, or Booker would have to drop out of the race. That announcement comes in the wake of Mayor Bill de Blasio ending his campaign on Friday after scoring like 0% in New York polls. I mean, just he had one supporter upstate. One supporter upstate, people. It's a cry for help. Anyway, de Blasio out after one of the worst campaigns Clearly in a bunch of New recent Yorkers memory. This table. Uh, true story. Uh, so but let's look at the lower tier candidates outside the top five. And there does seem to be a bit of desperation kicking in. I will say that Cory Booker's unexpected gambit seems to have actually raised him a bunch of money, uh, half a million dollars a million in the first dollars. 24 hours. Uh, but Harry, kick it off. What's going on for the folks in the low end of the totem pole? So take a look at this. We have some numbers that we can crunch. And here it is. So take a look at candidates who in the second half of the year averaged a vote share of less than 5%. Literally one of them, one of them went on to win a major party nomination. Who is Jimmy Carter? That is correct. Ah, James Earl Carter, former governor of Georgia. That is correct. And so Bill Clinton at this point, you could argue, was in that range as well. But he wasn't even in the race at this point. And by the end of this you know, through December, he was well above that. Um, and if you look at Iowa, you basically get the sort of same picture. You know, yes, George Herbert Walker Bush won the Iowa caucuses despite polling at just 1% in Des Moines Register poll in August of 79. But overwhelmingly, you need to be at 5% or above usually at this point to go on to win the Iowa caucuses. So you're looking at those people below 5%. And the odds, folks, just not very good. But how how does it change the odds that the game was fundamentally different in 1976? In other words, you didn't need as much money. You could just go hustle. You could go park yourself in Iowa and get everywhere and didn't have to have 136,000 You could 136, move to F in Iowa and, like Kamala Harris and have a prayer. I, I think that, you know, if anything, that would suggest that the odds I just put out there are too high. Um, and, you know, the fact is this entire campaign has been nationalized, right? Yep. Uh, you look at the numbers, you've seen the same movement in the early states as you've seen nationally. You see Warren rising nationally. She's rising in the early states. You see Sanders falling nationally. You see him falling in the early states. And to me, this is just it's troubling roads for those below five. But look, polarization hurts the efficacy of some of these early states. In the past, you could make the argument, well, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire are sort of, you know, they, they pump the brakes on some of the progressive enthusiasm. But as the parties get more polarized, they're actually less representative of the general electorate. And that leads to less representative candidates in the general. I don't general. know if this is a case, though. Is this a case of polarization or is this a case of the Democratic Party intentionally creating rules that ultimately nationalize their primary and undermine the local voters or the local state voters in Iowa and New Hampshire? Go on. Well, look, if they hadn't said you have to have 165,000 donors in 20 states by X date, Jimmy Carter could have moved to—Jimmy Carter would never be playing right now in 19, if this were 1976 and these were those rules. Because Jimmy Carter didn't have any money. He went to Iowa and he worked his tail off and it didn't matter. He wouldn't have made—he would be cut out of this debate at this point were those rules The Steve Bullock of this campaign, you're saying. <laughs> to, 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 the only I red state you, governor sir. still in I the race you, who sir. should be yeah. on the I, stage. It's Steve Bullock, the Jimmy Carter of 2020. The one difference I would point out between Bullock and Carter was that Carter parked himself in Iowa very, very early on. Bullock on the race rather late. And that's yes. something that we have seen this year is those candidates who decided to get in late have actually seen a, seen a penalty with the real exception of Biden. Pretty much everyone who is competitive at all at this point was in March or before. Warren, remember, declared very early yep. on she had her um, exploratory committee, I believe, on December 31st, if I recall correctly, or late December. Uh, and 
that's just an indication that if you want to win a nomination, chances are you should get an early. Can we just talk about Cory Booker for a second? It yes. is one of the enduring mysteries of this campaign why he has not been able to break out. He's not doing well among African Americans. He's a great retail politician. He hires a great staff in a couple of key states, including South Carolina. Um, he's a good order. He's had strong debate performances. What's his message? I think that's that's perhaps the problem. Yeah. Look, he's been what's early his, on early. What's he going to do? Is he going to well, build a wall? Is he, he going to tax the top two cents? What's well, he, like, he going to do? I think traditionally, Cory Booker is a guy who's got a unifying message. Maybe that's not the what voters are looking for right oh. now, although it is what the country needs. He was early. We had, had the strongest early gun proposal. That's been an issue that's dominated parts of the Democratic campaign. Um, but, you know, he's just failed to convert. And it's fascinating and a bit mysterious to me, frankly. I, I think that a lot of the oxygen in the room was taken out by Biden in terms of the return to normalcy, sort of bringing people together uh, block. The other thing that I point out is that I think, you know, if you're talking about nationalizing a campaign, the media plays a big role in this. And while Booker's message may seem new and unique to people in Iowa and New Hampshire without the media coming in there, the fact is, is that many of those in the New York City media have known about Cory Booker for over a decade now. And the message might be running a little stale. So you're saying you're cynical and he's stale. Um, I'm saying that the media is cynical and therefore they believe he's stale. So you really think the media's prism has filtered Cory Booker's message to uh, main America? I, I am saying that that could definitely be part of it. I am a big believer that the, of the role that the media plays in primary campaigns. All right. Pivoting from the campaigns to the issues, you know, the stuff of governing. On Friday, there was a global climate strike in which millions of people worldwide joined marches and took to the streets calling for climate justice to be an ethical obligation and not just an environmental issue. Now, this was followed by a special climate action summit at the United Nations in which Greta Thunberg, a young climate activist from Sweden, delivered a fiery speech, really holding older generations' feet to the fire. The activism we're seeing on this issue, that's real. But is it backed up by the polling? Harry, what you seeing? I mean, the fact of the matter is, is it is backed up by the polling, at least among Democrats. But here's the problem, right? Um, Democrats are not the entire part of the electorate. If you were to look... Uh, yes, that is definitively true. Uh, what, what you'd essentially look is that we asked in our last CNN poll, you know, are, are these issues, certain issues extremely important to your vote? And climate change actually ranked number two among Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents. Um, but among Republicans, it ranked dead last. And this, I think, is the issue of climate change. There are fewer issues in the American electorate right now that are as polarizing as this one. And that's why you saw the actions of Donald Trump at the U.N. Margaret, one of the things that's so strange about this is that the impact of climate change is being seen and felt by people in real time, particularly in many red states, wildfires, flooding, etc. So Republicans were really moving towards uh, this issue a decade ago. And now they're totally you know, more polarized and further apart than ever. Do you think that's a problem for the Republican Party going forward? Or is it a problem in the way this issue has been messaged to Republicans? Well, I, it's, it seems to me that it's a problem for the Republican Party moving forward. But it, it also seems to me that for as polarized as this has gotten, and Harry, I'd like to, I'd like to understand this, you know, if, if Democrats win, they win this issue, right? They, they win the ability to legislate, to affect policy, to have this bully pulpit, to, to educate the country. And while Republicans, I think, whole, on whole, have a, a lack of, they agree that this is not a top priority, there is a, a widespread about, that agree about what to do about climate change. Mm-hmm. I think there's, there's a, a range of climate change isn't an issue to, you know, 
you should know that the UN ambassador to the United Nations now, who is married to a mining magnate, a coal magnate, is not sitting up there denying climate change. So you have seen a shift on in, in where Republicans are in terms of climate change. Donald Trump went to the climate change summit yesterday at the United Nations for a hot second. For a hot second, and he, he got, a, he got a, to be there. He got a call out from Mike Bloomberg too, who welcomed him for being there and hoped that the. The contents of that panel would inform his administration's climate activism. Look, there, it, it, it's a it's a risk for Republicans when it comes to being viable for the next generation. But let me just tell you, I mean, I've been writing about this issue for about a decade now. This is but one of many issues that Republicans are lagging on. Uh, you know, I'm always skeptical about predicting too far into the future. Um, issues can change and so on and so forth. What I will say, though, is that if you talk to Harry Reid, I believe it's been reported that he has essentially said that if the Democrats gain the majority in the Senate, that should be their number one priority. Climate change should be their number one priority. Is anybody listening to Harry Reid about I, how to lead the Senate? I, I think that there are still a lot of Democrats. If you look at the Democrats who are involved in Elizabeth Warren's um, sort of campaign and in her orbit. But I think that there's going to be this real push. You know, we've had all this focus on health care, right? I wouldn't be surprised if instead the top issue for Democrats coming into the next Congress, if in fact they hold the presidency and hold the Senate and hold the House, this is going to be a real push on climate change. This is a different kind of issue as well, right? We as a species and as a country don't do a great job dealing with slow-moving crises. But this is a crisis that is occurring and people are feeling, and it's a classic example of that old Republican idea that Abraham Lincoln articulated and, and Dwight Eisenhower echoed, which is the proper role of government is to do what for, people, for people what they can't do so well for themselves. Climate is a bigger issue. And so I, the fact this has become partisan, I think is a bit despair. It's been partisan for 30 years. No, no, no. But, but, part, but, I mean, this is not a new partisan it, issue. No, it, it is because it was being it was less partisan a decade ago when John McCain was talking about cap and trade. When you had Newt Gingrich and Nancy Pelosi sitting on a couch in a PSA talking about the importance of this issue. I remember when Al Gore went on uh, the Seven Hundred Club with Pat Robertson back in the '90s to discuss climate change, and Pat Robertson welcomed him aboard. Um, so wow, a I, dusty memory from uh, Harry Etten's preteen television watching. And the other thing I'll just note is that. Unlike a lot of other issues within the Republican Party where the higher education levels, the more you more move towards the center of the electorate. In fact, on the issue of climate change, the more educated you are, the more skeptical you are about man's uh, role in climate change, which is a very interesting little nugget. That seems problematic. But then again, as a wise man once said, everything's problematic. And that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And special thanks to Margarita for sitting in. Thanks for having me. I really like it. Thanks. Okay. Kate, we'll be back over next week. And if you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. While you're there, leave us a rating or comment. It helps find new listeners and help them find the show. You can always find us on Twitter. I'm at John Avalon. Margaret, where can people find you on Twitter? Margaret Hoover. And Harry? F-O-R-E-C-A-S-T-E-R. And just imagine... Caster E-N-T-E-N. Enten. You just imagined him with pom-poms. I'm sorry, and I apologize on behalf of everyone here at CNN. Special thanks for our production team this week, Amy Eason, Emma Soslowski, and we'll see you right back here next time on Forecast Fest. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.